재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 In this week's Get to Know, we're joined in the studio by a multilingual author, TV personality, someone I'm meeting for the first time, but a lot of our Korean listeners are going to know the name very well. Cho Sung-yeon speaks, he says, something like seven languages. He's dated in at least four of them, according to things he's written. He has traveled extremely widely, and he is on the air in various programs that you can catch on Korean media. He's here in the studio to talk with us about some of his experiences and share some insights. Sung-yeon, welcome. It is a real pleasure to meet you for the first time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm trying to figure out a way to describe you simply. I mean, you've got sort of a background in art, in travel, in languages. Um, what would you say is your main sort of interest? Well, I'm a writer, and I write about culture and history. Sure. Uh, I think of my job as getting as many people as possible interested in culture and history of countries outside of Korea and the U.S., Because in Korea, most people say, okay, most people are interested in Korea because it's our own story, obviously. And when people say, oh, I'm interested in other countries, they mainly mainly mean the U.S. So I write books about history and cultures of places that are basically not America. Yeah, the rest of the world. Right. Because America kind of has such outsized influence, you might as well focus on the other spots. What's the most remote place you've been and written about? I guess Morocco. I made a travel documentary in Morocco a few years back, and it was fascinating because you think of Morocco as most Korean people don't know anything about Morocco. But when I went there, was the, the, the richness of cuisine and history, the pride people have in their own culture and history was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. What is it about travel that, uh, you know, did you, what was your very first trip that you took and you sort of got the bug? My mother got the bug when I was about nine. So... In Korea, you couldn't have a regular passport until about 1989. Mm. When Korean government allowed normal citizens to have passport, my mom just wanted to go to Europe so bad. And at the time, in Korean culture, you couldn't just leave your kids with your family and go by yourself, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> it was seen as a little too selfish, right? Right. A little too self-indulgent. Right. So I was about eight at a time. My brother was nine. And my mom took us on a tour of Europe. Uh, so I visited Paris, Rome, Switzerland, Frankfurt, and that was an eye-opener. Yeah. And ever since then, you know, if I stay in one place too long, I begin to get a little, you know, jiggy. You, one of your very first bestseller books I have in front of me, 공부의 기술, The oh, Art. That's embarrassing to the talk art, about. Yeah. <laughs> Is it embarrassing? <laughs> Why? Because it was written at a time when you think you know, like, everything. Okay. So You were the, young. Yeah, I was uh, I was sophomore in college. Okay. So basically, the ideal book came from this circumstance. So at the time, uh, a lot of Koreans were going abroad to study. It was at the peak of a yuhak boom. There were about 120,000 Koreans studying in U.S. universities at the time. And I happened to, I got lucky, so I went to middle school and high school in the U.S. as well. So when I saw Korean kids coming straight out of Korean high schools and coming to U.S. universities and the professors say, hey, what do you want to do? Mm. They're all like, oh my God, nobody's ever asked me that question before. So that motivated me to write the book, which looking back, like a college sophomore trying to give college freshman advices, it's, uh, it's a little embarrassing, you know, when I look at it now. I mean, I, to me, it sounds like it's uh, a knack for marketing. I mean, what 
uh, subject are Koreans more passionate about than how to get ahead, how to study well, how to, you know, sort of hack the study system. It sounds to me like somebody with, um, you know, kind of their their fingers on the pulse of what uh, Koreans would want to read. Well, actually, I had no idea what the Koreans wanted to read because I I was in the U.S. for about 10 years by Mm -hmm. the time. But I did need the money. (laughs) But I didn't expect this to become my job, you know, um, at the time my family was in a financial bind. So I wanted a way out of that financial bind. And there was no way, given the U.S. university tuitions, I would do that by washing dishes. Right? Yeah. So I say, might as well try this. And it worked beyond my wildest It was a dreams. huge success. Yeah. Rags to riches, maybe. Yeah. And then back to rags because I spent all that money pretty fast. <laughs> Writing is, um, does, it, does it come easy to you? or I write when I have something to write about. So I write very quickly. I write a book in about three weeks. Okay. But I vegetate afterwards for about two years. So I travel, I read other people's books, and I think about stuff. And when I really feel compelled that I have something to say, then I put the pen to the paper, and then you just, it'll go. So you catch fire. I mean, because some writers say, listen, I have to sit down for uh, two hours, whether I have anything to say or not, and just practice the, the craft. You're not like that. You just catch fire, and it kind of flies out. Yeah, I think those writers normally have like tighter deadline than I do. Mm. That's why. Yeah. Like they actually want to write a book every year or something like that. Uh-huh. If I was under that kind of pressure, I think I would use the same approach. Mm. But I'm sort of a, I'm a bum, right? So I just, if I don't work for a couple of years, I don't really care. And then when I have something to write, I will. In between sort of these productive times, writing and stuff, and I know you do some media hosting and stuff, what kind of stuff do you do? Do you uh, Are you a laid-back guy, or are you somebody who's always studying something, or, you know, what's, what's your day well, well, like? I think I'm laid-back, but my friends don't, because if I'm, like, using a language study app to memorize a bunch of Spanish words, like, for me, that's just relaxing, but... Some, <laughs> That's you know, a little weird. Yeah, my friends will be like, what are you doing? But it's like when you do anything in a very concentrated way, it just makes you forget all the outside stuff. Yeah. So let's just say you're on your Facebook. Uh-huh. And the Facebook in itself is not an interesting activity usually, right? It's just a bunch of stuff that other people shared with you. But the reason I think people look at Facebook is because they don't want to think about their boss. Yeah. Distracted. <laughs> it's distracted. So for me, for me, it's the same thing. When I'm looking at like a list of Spanish words, I don't think about work. So it's relaxing for me. Is Spanish the current language? Yeah, that's the one I'm working on right now. Seven total I've got here in front of me. You speak uh, or, or have an ability to sort of uh, survive in uh, seven or so different linguistic Well, I, I, I divide my linguistic ability into sort of a three tier. Okay. So the highest tier is like date ready so I can go on date and impress somebody do you need a high language level to uh, date successfully Uh, if you date the way I do yes okay yeah if your dating pattern is taking you know your date to an art museum and showing off your knowledge then you probably do need a high linguistic level to do that kind of dating Uh so date ready is when I can talk about pretty much anything in that language and, and elicit some sort of emotional response and I place four languages in that category. Okay. English uh, clearly would be one of them. Yeah, and Korean, obviously, sure. and French and Italian. Okay. Um, and the second tier, I would say, is school-ready. So you can't really like have deep em- emotional uh, relationship with a person in that language, but you understand generally what people are talking about, and you can logically comprehend it or analyze it. I'd put German in that level and maybe Chinese. And then the lowest level is sort of travel ready, like I can order food at restaurants and 
not get lost when yeah. you look at a map in that language. And I had to put probably Japanese in that category. And now Spanish in about six months. Yeah. Yeah. Quite impressive. Do you uh, the, the the languages that you learned well? I think you said French, Italian, German. Uh, is that part of studying something else, or is that does that come? Oh with, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, art history. Art history. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. When you study art history, you kind of have to. Yeah. Because a lot of stuff are not translated, especially Italian documents that are not translated. You have to have ability to read them, and for example, you need to be able to look at a painting and see inscriptions underneath and. Be able to say, oh, that's from Dante, which means you have to read Dante in Italian before you look at the painting. You have to have the canon. You have to understand what's being said, the poetry, the lines. So I trained myself in the beginning reading those classical poetries in Italian and French. Mm. And modern French and Italian was actually harder for me than the classical Italian. And when I first went to France, like people made fun of me because there's this Asian kid who's educated in the U.S. using vocab from like 200 years ago. (laughs) So Baudelaire poetry words and things like that. Yeah, so my uh, my friend would call me Monseigneur, <laughs> which is a very old version of Monsieur, right? So okay. Monseigneur would be like, "Oh, my lord, ah, my yeah. lordship," uh, because I w- I would use such an outdated version of their language. Uh-huh. But I think transitioning uh, forward is easier than backward. Yeah. So let's say you know modern French and you want to read classical French, it's very difficult. Mm. But if you know Classical French, modern French, you can pick it up. In, you can build on the yeah. old stuff and get One the modern stuff. Yeah. And you said, I, you cited as um, your top languages as your date-ready languages. So is your sort of you know date approach, art history and quotes from uh, French and Italian literature, is that kind of the, uh, the tactical approach you take? Uh, that was my tactical approach when, when it still worked. Um, <laughs> Does it not work anymore? Yeah, I think um, when you're like 25. Okay. And all the other guys are just watching like TV dramas. Yeah. And you talk about like art and history. Girls are like, wow, that's really yeah. impressive. He's mature. You stand out from the bros, yeah. don't you? But when you do that, when you're like 36, you just seem like stuffy and old now. So now uh-huh. I got to talk about like girl groups and stuff. You got to go retro. Yeah. Yeah. You're not married. No. Because we, we do this whole other segment about uh, people who are not married. I mean, um, if, you, if you know something about Korean culture, if, uh, if I were married, I wouldn't be coming on radio and talking about like my... Your dates. Former dating experience. <laughs> that's we good, do not do that in this country. <laughs> oh, that's how I, how I inferred. I thought, you know, uh, either there's going to be a real angry wife at home, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so you're not. Um, and the big question we do in this whole other segment where we invite unmarried people on is, is we're trying to figure out why so many viable bachelors or women in Korea are choosing to stay unmarried uh, past the age when they might have gotten married in earlier eras. Is that just because you like the independence? Well, that's part of it. And in um, in Korea, I think a uh, particular problem is that parents have a lot of say in who you marry, how you marry, where you marry, what kind of ceremony you're going to have, what kind of arrangement under which you're going to marry. And the more independent you are, uh, usually the more eligible you are, the more independent you're going to be, the more independent you are, the less you're likely to take that, all that stuff. So, for example, my friend um, wanted to marry somebody and they wanted to have a casual marriage in a sort of a pool villa setting in Southeast Asia. Nice. And their parents put so much pressure on them, they're just like, let's just leave it together and don't tell them. Wow. Don't, let's not tell old mom and dad. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get uh, mom and dad down for a negotiation and say, look, this is what we want. Uh, no, that's not negotiable. Because uh, when Korean parents raise their kids, a lot of times that's the moment they're waiting for. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, they they want to have their Hamburg, you know, nice hotel. Uh huh. So I mean, so it's a party for the parents as much as it is for the couple. It's absolutely a party for parents. Yeah, and I think you know most Koreans would be willing to do that for them, you know, because we received so much. You're like, okay, you, they can have their day, but a lot of younger generation, they're like, okay, either they're gonna have to accept the vision of marriage I have, or I'm I'm gonna stay not married. Yeah. I mean, some people are just simply not married. Mihom. Some people are principally against the idea of being married. Bihom, right? Right, right. Which one would you say you lean towards? I just haven't met the right person. Just not yet. Yeah. I mean, not, it's not even not yet. It's just if the right person comes along, I will. Yeah. And if there's no, if the right person doesn't come along, then I probably won't. Yeah. So it's not principal thing. It's just, you know, just never had the occasion kind yeah. of thing. And in the meantime, you've got your Spanish vocabulary applications. It's great. Yeah. You know, it takes more time than your girlfriend. <laughs> right? <laughs> does the, all the language study, does it give you insights into your own language, Korean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, for example, in Korean, you have uh, a present continuous tense, like hago itta. Mm. So I began to think about how that itta, in essence, is the same meaning uh, as the verb to be. Yeah. So Korean... Present continuous tense and American present continuous tense, uh, English present continuous tense, is essentially the same mental construction. I think so. Yeah, you are existing in the moment at which, etc., etc. Tenses are some of the most interesting things in language, mm. right? The progression of time and when something was complete and uh, it was complete in the past or I used to do it at staggering times in the past. Right. And it's- sometimes you look at Korean ad, you know, the way foreigner might perceive it and... Sometimes I like making up sentences that foreigners would have a really hard time with. Okay. Like, 하려고 하긴 했는데, 하려고 하는 대로 해지지가 않네. Okay. You use, like, the maximum scope of a Korean verbal yeah. sort of inflection and try to construct sentences like this. And I sometimes enjoy giving it to foreign friends who, who are studying Korean and say, hey, what do you think this means? Yeah. What <laughs> does it mean, that thing that you just said? Uh, it means I was going to do it, but it's not working out the way I, exactly the way I planned. Yeah. But in Korean, you can say all that with one verb, hada. Yeah. And the, all the inflections are like, I had the intention to do it, but I didn't, you know. Right. That's one of the most maddening things about learning Korean for How are you uh, getting English along? Be- well, you know, <laughs> I creep along, you know, in Tarzan, Korean. I'm basically at your getting around and traveling kind okay, of Okay, like uh, my Japanese. Level. Maybe, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, in Korea, there's so much to unearth in Korea. I mean, uh, one of the things about Korean is that it's got a very simple writing system, but it has so many inputs from, from history mm. and from... Uh, it's a very assimilative language in mm. many ways, right? English is as well. Um, I think foreigners look at Korean and they see more of that yeah. than we would. Yeah. But if you look at English and you actually discern which part of English is from French and which part is from original Anglo-Saxon, which part is from Latin, and you can construct the whole world history out of an yeah. English dictionary as well. Uh-huh. And that's why I love learning languages is sort of like putting together the puzzle in my head and you sort of follow words yeah. and you can reconstruct what history books don't say about the world, like what people actually thought about things. 
Absolutely. I mean, it totally lights your... I, I would love to see the brain diagram of somebody who's uh, really into languages. We just had a, f- a few weeks back the ambassador to Poland on this show. Oh, wow. And he's wildly interested in all these languages, and he's translating books about English and so forth. Um, there's a certain kind of passion in people that are interested in uh, in languages, I think. you know. And in, I mean, one day here in Korea... especially with all this summit stuff, you're talking about Tongil lately and uh, mm-hmm. the two sides coming together. That's going to be quite a linguistic bridge, if nothing else, you know? Oh, the North Korean yeah. Korean is a fascinating treasure trove of Korean language. I mean, uh, the way they translate um, all the soccer terms oh, yeah. into Korean and uh, the words they come up with. It's, it's Give hilarious. me an example. For example, corner kick is... a. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact term, but they try to use as little Chinese characters as possible, and they try to use certainly as little English as possible. Okay. So when you look at the solutions they come up with for filling those holes with original Korean constructions, I mean, sometimes I look at that and say, hey, we should do that. And here in South Korea, you just go corner kick. Right. Okay. So a lot of people think that just uh, it doesn't get the original meaning because it's a foreign it it stays a foreign term. But you know, kusok chagi like everybody in Korea can understand that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, we were talking to a doctor who uh, works with North Korean doctors, and uh, you know, there's um, sudden sudden death in in hospitals. And what was it? Kapchak uh, chugum or something like that. Chugum. Kapchak chugum. Kapchak chugum was the North Korean term, yeah. and there was this entire other sort of Chinese derived. Yeah, kupsa probably. In That's Korean. it. Yeah. Kupsa. So uh, it'll be so interesting to see how those come together. Do you get into like satori or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I, I think satri is very important. I went on another TV show and, and lamented about the disappearance of a Jeju language. Yeah. And the main reason is that one of the things that, that I love doing is going to different areas where people speak different dialects and try to perceive commonalities. Okay. And that gives you a clear picture of what our language is really like. So it's not, it doesn't come from a grammar book. Language doesn't come from a grammar book. It comes from having a certain strain of thought in your head and trying to express yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a lot of variety of uh, Koreans, you can sort of get at what Korean really is and then how it was. Sort of the DNA of the Korean linguistic mind right. in a way. So yeah. imagine like biology. Let's just say there's just one species that live on Earth right now. Darwin would have never wrote Original Species. Darwin started out by thinking, why are there so many species on, on Earth? Uh-huh. What's the mechanism? Right. And then he figured out the theory of evolution. And likewise, uh, William Jones, which is, um, who's the father of modern uh, etymology study, went to study Sanskrit. And he perceived the similarity between Latin and Sanskrit. And he constructed the entire genealogy of Indo-European languages. Yeah. Now, in order to do that for Korean language... As many varieties of Korean needs to still exist. But because Korea is ironically so highly educated and so many Korean people learn their Korean from books. So standardized. It is so standardized that uh, in 20 years, I highly doubt we'll even be able to construct a genealogy of Korean language if somebody wanted to. Somebody needs to get on that. Somebody needs to get on uh, recording and archiving and preserving all of these sort of... Uh, People do that. Um, Another sad part is that... Languages related to Korean that existed in Manchuria Mm. and Siberia is disappearing at a remarkable pace as well. So before you could go to Manchuria, there are some people, some scholars in Korea that go to uh, Manchuria and they record tribal languages that 
have similar verb endings as Korean and things like that. But they're all speaking Chinese now because they want to get a job in Shanghai or Beijing. And all the Siberian tribes, they're getting a job in Moscow sure. or Kiev. So these, the second, third generation of these tribes, they're not going to be tribal. They're going to be Russians. They're going to be Chinese. Yeah. They're not going to even know the language of their, their forefathers. So this is probably the most important thing that needs to be done in terms of linguistic studies, trying to preserve as much linguistic diversity as possible at yeah. this point. Well, language follows the money and the power, right? That's why so many people speak English around the world nowadays. Yeah, I mean, uh, one linguist actually made a, an interesting lecture where he said that people are all excited about the computer translation systems, the yeah. artificial intelligence translation systems. But by the time that that becomes perfect, everybody's going to speak English anyway, so it doesn't even really yeah. matter. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a cynical view. What's your next um, big project? Uh, you got a book percolating in you? Uh, yeah, I'm writing a book about, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sort of calling it right now as a project, Wisdom of Others. Okay. So basically the idea is that Korean people are very much into wisdom. Uh, the all... Talmud remains a bestseller here in Korea. That's true. Yeah. You know, everybody's got a Talmud, which was surprising to me. Yeah. Ancient Jewish wisdom sort of processed and assimilated into Korea. Right. But only problem is that we sort of in some way got stuck in the 1950s. And we think that wisdom of certain countries are more valuable than wisdom of other countries. For example, okay. Talmud is very important because... The Jewish are so successful. Exactly. Yeah. Or the American wisdom, like the Armagnac, for example. Mm. Thomas Jefferson, people might read it because America is so successful. But I want to introduce wisdom of countries that are not like materially Typically, so successful, yeah. but maybe happier. Okay. What are we talking about? Hinduism type of stuff? Or? Uh, yeah, there's some Hinduism in there. There's some, uh, there's some Italian farmer stuff. What does an Italian farmer know that could make Koreans happier? For example, I think he knows there are a lot of things in the world that you can't change, okay. whereas Korean people think you can change everything. All right. Uh, for example, I saw this interesting saying at an Italian restaurant, and he says uh, the quote was from my grandma, right? So the, the, it was restaurant owner's farmer grandma, mother, grandmother uh -huh. who, who used to say this. And in the Roman dialect, it makes a very interesting rhyme, and it roughly translates in English to who knows doesn't do, who does doesn't know, therefore the world goes bad. Right? This kind of Italian, sort of a simple yeah. Italian rustic wisdom. That sounds vaguely Taoist to me in a way. Yeah, but I think all natural people have this kind of yes. wisdom. And I think right now, uh, when you look at Korean liberal arts, we focus so much on quote-unquote civilized people, right? Quote-unquote developed people. Right. That we... We lose sight of this um, simple wisdom that you accumulated over generation by people who are just, you know, farming their rice paddies or growing their grapevine for 20th generation. Interesting. So the wisdom of others, when will that roughly hit shelves or hit uh, the, the, the publishers, do you think, sometime next year? Or well, as you year? said, uh, percolating. It's percolating. It's percolating. So okay. I, I haven't put pen to paper. Uh, pen oh, really? Paper, okay. Yeah. And once you do... If you, if you follow your previous style, yeah, you'll just catch ways, fire. It'll be, It'll be out in a couple of weeks. So we can all look forward to that. In the meantime, we can catch you on various uh, media programs around town. Cho Sung-yeon, it has been a huge pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks for oh, coming It's been in. my pleasure. Thank you.